Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Eighty years since Hitler invaded Poland, are there lessons from history about the rise of China? Today we talk to Hugh White about a new Cold War, touch on the nuclear taboo, find out how to defend Australia and ask whether Australia's China choice has already been made for us. That's all coming up on today's Democracy Sausage. G'day there and welcome again to Democracy Sausage uh, with me, Mark Kenny, coming to you from the ANU Crawford School. This podcast, of course, a, a joint production between ANU and the and Policy Forum. And uh, joining me today, as always, is Maria Taflaga, the uh, uh, lecturer in politics and international relations at ANU here. And hello, Maria. How hello. Are you? Hello, everyone. Another another week, more issues to discuss. More issues, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> it's always the way. And it's a great pleasure to uh, uh, announce today that we have Hugh White here. Hugh White is a Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the ANU and, of course, author of a recent book, his most recent book, How to Defend Australia, very well-known figure in, uh, in Australian public policy. Welcome to you, Hugh. Nice to be with you both. It's interesting, isn't it, that we watching a number of events unfold in the world. Uh, we're seeing so much uh, happening on the international stage, so many meetings. There's obviously a, a G7 meeting going on at the moment that Australia is involved with. And yet there's this really great sense of instability. And here we are right on the cusp of the 80th anniversary of the beginning of World War II. Uh, this coming Sunday is uh, September the 1st. Now, that's the day that Hitler... Uh, invaded Poland and, of course, you know, really kicked off the the, the uh, Second World War. So um, I guess it, it, those historical parallels, which one has to be very cautious about making, but, uh, you know, there's some great uh, um, lessons, I guess, from that whole period. And uh, I guess we're still working within the architecture that arose out of that uh, that appalling tragedy. Yes, look, I, I think that's right. I, I do think it's very useful to pay attention to anniversaries because I do just remind you both that history is a flow and also there are discontinuities. Sometimes, you know, things really do change. Um, but there's a great line from Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes, yeah. which tells you that, yes, you can see similarities and you can learn from those similarities, but you don't want to overlearn from the similarities. You don't want to let the past become and, – and, and, and what are presumed to be lessons of history become a kind of a straitjacket. So when we look at the – the 1st of September, as you say, it's a significant anniversary and I think there are two different kinds of lessons we want to draw from it. The, the first is the lesson that our confidence that the international system is running like a Swiss watch and will keep running like a Swiss watch needs to be very carefully modulated. Now, you know, there was a very strong period between the uh, – after the First World War in the 20s and 30s where people became very confident that international affairs were no longer going to be sort of shaped and to a certain extent determined by armed force. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a period, of course, of terrible grieving and mourning after the First World War, but also of optimism. 
And one of the things that went wrong in the 1930s, one of the reasons why the world, including Australia, didn't prepare very well for what began 80 years ago on Sunday, was the misplaced confidence that somehow uh, we'd moved past the idea of of uh, a world in which armed force, particularly armed force between major powers, played a big role. And what struck me very strongly, even back in the 90s, was how how quickly and enthusiastically we grasped that idea again. Oh, the end the, of history. The end of history, exactly. Yeah. And and the idea that, that Gallo, I mean, so. you know, in the in the 1990s um, and, and in the 2000s, I mean, till very recently, in fact, people were saying, look, we've moved past a world in which countries are going to go to war to, with one another, particularly major powers are going to go to war with one another. And, you know, that proved to be wrong back in the 20s and 30s. Wrong, yes. And I think we want to be very conscious that, we, we are living in a world in which major powers have, differ very deeply on very major strategic questions, like in our own region, which who's going to be the dominant power in Asia, and they continue to spend an awful lot of money on weapons and have and and see the role of armed force in their competition very significantly. So we just can't take peace for granted. And I think m- one of the differences between the way I see the world we're in at the moment, and particularly Asia, and the way many others see it, is that I think the risk of a major conflict between the US and China is higher than many other people do. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is that people tend to look back particularly at what happened before the 1st of September 1939. They look back particularly at Munich. They look back at September 1938 and say that there's a lesson, the lesson of Munich, capital L, capital Mm. M. And the lesson of Munich is that you never compromise with rising powers. And to, to, to try and accommodate a rising power is, a, is appeasement and appeasement is a, is a bad thing by definition. Well, I think that's the lesson in history we want to be very careful about because although I do think you need to be very, very conscious of what it means to introduce a rising power like China into the international system, the idea that the only way we can possibly respond to China is to do in relation to China what we should have done in relation relation to Germany, Germany, is at least a very um, lazy piece of international analysis. Of course, we do need to learn the lessons of 1938 and where it led in 1939, but we also need to recognise that history doesn't repeat itself, it, it just rhymes, and China is not Nazi Germany. And what might or might not have been the right thing to do in failing to in, in standing up to Hitler over Czechoslovakia in 1938 um, may not be the right way to deal with China. And so I think we need to sort of don't overlearn the lesson of the late 1930s as we deal with China. And, and also, there's just the simple reality that the this rising superpower, this emerging superpower, being China, it's not. It, you know whether we choose to accommodate, uh, contain, embrace. However, whatever our response is, it's going to continue anyway. There's no great uh, likelihood of China sort of simply stopping where it is and saying, "Oh, we're happy to be sort of number two or three in the world," and you know we're not going to we're not going to assert our rights. China, is, <clears throat> excuse me, China is increasingly behaving like a great power. Well, uh, and I historically, mean, it's always been sense. what Indeed. you know. Yeah, like this current. <clears throat> Um, period of Chinese history is is sort of aberrant of the norm. So it's sort of a sort of ridiculous expectation that it should just accept sort of a second fiddle status. Absolutely. And yet that expectation remains the foundation both of America's and of Australia's approach to China's rise today. Because if you look at the the Australian case, for example, if you look at when Australian political leaders say, as I keep on saying, we don't have to choose between America and China, 
we want to preserve the rules-based order, all those sorts of formulae, all seem to me to reflect the idea that they, they hope and expect that somehow or other China is going to step back, that it's going to accept American leadership as the foundation for the Asian order, accept that sort of position as number two. And as Marie said, that, that's, that's just historically um, anomalous, but it's also in relation to China, but it's also anomalous in relation to every rising power we've ever dealt with in history. Since the adult, yeah. And so, so, you know, it might be that it would be nice if China did that. It would be for better us. for Australia. We'd like China to just accept the old order, but it's totally unrealistic to expect that. We're going to, get a, we're going to have a new order, so we have to ask ourselves what kind of new order are we going to have and put a lot more effort into designing a new order that can accommodate China's power rather than simply trying to preserve the old one, which is what both Washington and I think in different ways Canberra are trying to do. Now, the trade war that's going on and various other expressions of this competition between the US and China have obviously added great urgency to this debate and, and uh, <clears throat> made it very prominent, I guess. The um, <clears throat> excuse me, the recent uh, uh, editorial written by, or op-ed written by Andrew Hastie, the head of the National Security and what is it, Intelligence Committee of Parliament, uh, where he sort of you know made this uh, comparison between Germany in the 1930s and China now. This brought a lot of criticism uh, on him for having made that comparison. We've discussed it a bit before on this pod, uh, but uh, I think he was trying to talk about I mean, he, what he did actually do is he proved Godwin's law, which is whenever you you know bring Hitler into the argument, you've already lost it, sort of thing. But uh, I think what he was trying to do is say, you know, he's not making a direct comparison between China and Germany. He's making more of an analogy between the reaction of the international community to the emergence of this power. Now, it's not just about the emergence of a new power; it's about whether that new power is going to be disruptive and and uh, is going to radically change the rules or just simply throw them all out. That really is the debate we need to be having about China, is it not? Yeah, China's look, coming, but the extent to which we can encourage China to behave within the international rules-based order is really the, the question because China's coming anyway. Yeah, look, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that the hasty um, uh, op-ed was very interesting moment, I think, in the history of Australia's debate about this subject because it came from within the government. And the, the, the government has been emphasising, at least since at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, the, the government, both under Turnbull and under Morrison, uh, have been very keen to sort of project a kind of business as usual with China uh, attitude. And the reason for that is very, is very simple, of course. They are trying to walk both sides of the street. They're trying to persuade the Americans that we're supporting America as it pushes back against China and trying to persuade the Chinese that we're not. <laughs> now, you know, d duplicity has its place in diplomacy, but I think you don't want to take it too far. And I, I think there's some merit in Andrew Hasty calling out the government and saying, you know, you're kidding. Uh, we can't just pretend that China's rising power isn't going to change anything and it's all going to be lovely. Uh, on the other hand, I think he did run a risk by using uh, an analogy that drew on the rise of, mm. of Nazi Germany precisely because it does tend to – well, it, it encouraged – although he didn't say this – it encourages people to encourage people to think that what he was saying was drawing an analogy between China yeah. and Nazi Germany, and plenty of people, plenty of people do do that. I mean, I have for a long time, going all the way back to a piece I wrote in as two thousand and ten, been arguing that we're going to need to accommodate China's growing power 
in the international order, not because I think that will make the international order better. It's just because I think it'll avoid an even worse outcome, which mm. looks more like the first of September, nineteen thirty-nine. Yeah, more like and no international order. Exa- exactly, and uh, and if we, you know, you want to preserve peace, then you're going to have to do some accommodation. And a lot of people um, uh, have identified that as appeasement. They yes. use the word, and 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 literally, <laughs> yeah. people come back and say, you know, we can't accommodate China because look what we did with Hitler. In 1938. I just well, think it's that the only gets example. His, it's exactly. I, I mean, think the First World War, Germany in the First World War, is much better example of like the situation that we're I, in. I think that's exactly right. You know, yes, it's that's so right. annoying. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things about China today that one doesn't like, but we simply misunderstand just how evil the Nazi regime in Germany was, if we draw an analogy between the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and the Nazi Party. The, the Nazi Party was really was exceptionally evil. Yeah, the CCP is a is a tough and ruthless bunch of people, but they're but they're not the Nazi Party. Yeah. Well again, as 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 you made the point, Andrew Hastie didn't say that. He was just yeah, he just yeah, had that attributed yeah. to but, him. But but I think it was important that um that uh, that what we have people like Hasty who are, you know, not a, not in the ministry, but he's a significant figure, obviously, in the parliamentary party, drawing the government's attention to the fact that they are kind of misleading the Australian public mm. about the challenge we face. And of course, nobody believes within government. No one believes that China is as benign or the problem is as easy as the government is trying to tell the public it is. Yeah, that's uh, right. It was that's, interesting. It's, it's, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, you know, quite moderate voices like Simon Birmingham, the trade minister, you know, slapped down Hasty quite a lot. There was a fair bit of pressure that came on through subtle messaging about telling uh, MPs and, you know, who in the Liberal Party have historically always had a right to, to speak out and say yeah. whatever they think. But there was this sort of... Um, uh, pressure publicly brought to bear to say, uh, look, uh, if you don't, th- this is not very helpful and you need to run a test in your mind as to whether this is going to be good for the government for you to say these sorts of things. Yeah. And it was really, uh, you know, there was, there was little, um, sort of artifice about it. It was basically shut up. Yeah. No, that's right. And that's because the government is trying to persuade themselves, I guess, certainly trying to persuade the rest of us, uh, that they can continue to sort of walk this narrow line between, you know, supporting the United States on the one hand and not offending China on the other. And in the short term, I have a little bit of sympathy for that. In the short term, it does make sense for uh, the government to try and manage this problem through on a day-by-day, week-by-week um, basis. But the problem with that is that it's a, it's not a short-term problem. It's a long-term problem. Mm. It's not going to go away if we just manage it to the end of the month. It's not going to go away next month. Yeah. And that's the approach the government's taking. And then in the long run, the question we've got to ask ourselves is, well, where does this go? Now, I think the government in its heart, hearts, if you ask them, you know, if you press them to say where is this heading, they'll, they will they go back to hoping that America is going to remain the dominant power in Asia and somehow the Chinese will, will, will crawl back into their box. Which, is the, the, which is the big elephant in the room, right? Like if we look at the sort of trade war stuff, um, you know, like uh, the, the US administration, the Trump um, administration is effectively um, like refusing to nominate or to um, select people to to be like the judges at the WTO, right? Um, and so like they are actually – they are pulling out the struts of part of the international-based order that is yeah. one of the ways in which these things are resolved, disputes are resolved. And so if, if the sort of hegemonic superpower that we're counting on – isn't behaving according to norms, well, you know, it makes it harder for us to sort of say things to to China in the first place, but it it also makes it harder for us to sort of know 
what we can do and who we can rely on. Yeah. No, look, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think it's also true at the, on the strategic level and in some ways even more intensively uh, that right at the heart of, the, of our present predicament is that the United States at the end of 2017 declared China as a strategic rival and have declared what many people are calling – not, not the government itself in Washington, but many people are calling a new Cold War. The trouble is I don't think the United States has either the capacity or the will to win this new Cold War. And when we look in the longer term at the at the viability of Australia's present response, because we keep on expecting that if we just balance our position week by week um, in the short term, in the long term, America will end up winning this one. I think that's 100% wrong. The, by far and away, the most likely outcome is that China will end up as the dominant power in Asia or the US and China will be drawn into uh, a, an, an even more intense strategic rivalry and quite possibly a conflict. And neither of those outcomes are good for Australia. So I think a, 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 more, a more creative, more responsible approach from Australia's point of view is to recognise that we are going to need to build a new order in which China plays a bigger role, to try and make sure that America can play the biggest role it can. And that's going to be a very different order from the one we've got used to. Uh, but Australia has been completely unable to make any make any contribution to framing that order because we keep on pretending the problem's going to go away of its own accord. Yes, this idea of choice, you know, we, you know, it's been a, a, a dominant feature of this debate for yeah. some time now, this question about whether we have to choose yeah. and, uh, you know, the, I guess the, the mindset that some have had is that we don't have to choose. That's been an, a, a, a strand of the argument. What about the proposition that we already have chosen and what we've chosen is to stand on the, is to sort of balance on the fence. <laughs> you know, we've got a yeah. leg either side yeah. and we, and we are, this is, this is the position we are hoping to be able to maintain yeah. for as long as possible, which is we have our great strategic protector and we have our great commercial partner, yeah. uh, beneficiary and, uh, or benefactor, I should say, uh, in, in our case. And, uh, that's the, that's the position we're hoping to just maintain for as long as possible. Well, I think the key word there, Mark, is hope. <laughs> um, you know, when, when Australian governments and both both sides of politics say this, say we don't have to choose between America and China, they make it sound like a statement of fact, whereas in fact it's just a statement of hope. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, hope is not a policy. Primarily, whether or not we have to choose between America and China doesn't depend on us. Of course, we don't want to choose. That's that's Of course we don't. But whether we have to choose depends on them and it depends in particular on how intense their rivalry becomes. Now, if, if, they, if they're not serious rivals, then they're not going to force us to make a choice. But the further their rivalry escalates, the starker the choices we have to make. And that's exactly what's happening. How important is it in making that choice, the manner in which that escalation occurs? For example, we have the most mercurial, uh, amateurish, unreliable uh, you could go on forever uh, with, with adjectives orange. about uh, <laughs> orange uh, president uh, that we've seen, administration that we've seen. We don't know. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, there have been tweets uh, calling on American companies to pull out of China. Ordering uh, American ordering companies, American to, pull companies to pull out of China. To, talking about invoking the emergency laws to do yeah. so. And, and then he seems to step away from that a bit. And then his staff come out and say, no, he wasn't stepping away from that at, at all. This is at the G7 meeting. Um Obviously, China's doing things that are outside the rules-based order as well. It's actions in the South China Sea, it's human rights record and a whole range of other things. So at the moment, we, we're able to maintain this position, as you say, based on hope. But if, as you also suggest, there is an escalation of the tensions, this rivalry, how important 
is it that uh, we side with the side that is perhaps operating within the rules? If if uh, you know if China, if, for if, example, moves on Taiwan, yeah, um, uh, well, we have a one-China policy, of course. If, but if, if either of them are operating within the rules, look, I think it's worth worth looking at this at a couple of different levels. The, the first is to look at what's happening in America, and one of our challenges here is that there are two separate strands running. On 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 the one hand. We, we, we have this bizarre administration. I mean, it's almost true to say that we don't have a serious administration in Washington. We have a, a man in the White House who is, you know, manifestly incapable of performing the functions of that office in a coherent fashion. And we have an administration around him which is extremely weak and extremely erratic. And that means that the most powerful country in the world and our greatest uh, allies simply cannot conduct a coherent policy on things. And that, that is a, a disaster. And not predictable either. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Entirely unpredictable. And, and, and in fact, I think often contradictory. For, for example, that the, the, the Washington foreign policy establishment talks a great deal about this new Cold War with China. Trump never does strategically. Of course, mm. the trade war, the tech war, for sure. But Trump never talks about America trying to push back against China strategically. And whether America really would uh, is, a, is a second is a is a really whether Trump really would would go forward is a big question. But the other thing is that even without Trump, Donald Trump, even Hillary Clinton, a very sober, orthodox kind of you know boring maybe, but mm. but capable, competent political yeah. leader, even if she'd won the election in twenty sixteen, America would still face an insuperable problem mm. simply because China is so strong. People don't people we've talked about China's rise for so long that we've sort of forgotten what it means. The fact is that China is the first country America has encountered since America came out of the Western Hemisphere in the late 19th century with an economy bigger than America's. And, you know, for all the talk about soft power and so on, the foundation of national power is the size of your economy. And that means that the costs and risks to America under any political leader of pushing back effectively against China will be extremely high. So I think there's this whole question as to whether, as we make this choice, whether America really is a country that we can credibly and coherently rely on? I think the answer is no. So when we ask ourselves, you know, do we have to choose? What choice do we make? The fact is that it's not so much do we choose to abandon America in favor of China. It's does America choose to abandon us? And I think the 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 most serious thing that the Australian governments and again both sides of politics are failing to do is to recognise that the most likely outcome for us is one in which the United States ceases to play a significant role in Asia because in the end it's, it, can't, it can't marshal the resolve to push back against China effectively, in which case there's not a question of whether we choose. The choice is made for us by America. Do you think China's behaviour, therefore, let, let's take the South China Sea, yes. do you think China's behaviour is, is merely just what you know, great powers do. That is, they secure their flanks. Yeah. Uh, you know, the US has Hawaii, for example. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I, th I think I think that is I think that is right. I mean, when when I look at the South China Sea, I see a, a great power doing exactly what you'd expect a great power to do as its power grows and as it seeks to establish a sphere of influence in its in its surroundings. Because you know, of course, the South China Sea thing operates at several different levels. There are genuine territorial issues. There are some quite complex legal questions. But there's also underlying it, I think, a strategic question. And the reason we're talking about it, the reason why anyone in Australia cares much about it, is is that is that legal is that Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Strategic question. And it's as simple as this. That when a, when a rising power seeks to challenge an established power, it looks for opportunities to demonstrate that its power is growing and the other guy's power is is shrinking, and so it looks for opportunities where the where where that that relative balance can be can be can be demonstrated. And what we've seen in the South China Sea in the last few years is that China started to do something, building these island bases. America has stood up very publicly and said, "You must not do that," and the Chinese have gone ahead and done mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Now th- that is exactly how you prove that. Well, you're saying I can't do something. Who's going to stop me? You and whose army? <laughs> and I mean, I think America made a very serious error of statecraft in deciding to take China on over the South China Sea without having decided in advance that it was prepared to make it stick. And what we know that in the in the Obama White House, there were bitter debates as to whether or not they should in fact try and actually block China from develop, physically block China from developing those islands. Like and by running a naval blockade? Well, by running a naval blockade. And Obama himself said, no, I need to cooperate with China on climate change. That's a more important issue for me. So we'll step back from this one. Now, I'm not saying that was the wrong decision. In fact, I don't think the South China Sea is a smart place to go to war with China. And I do think climate change is very important. But I think the uh, if that was their conclusion, then they should have stopped talking about the South China Sea because they made it a test, which yeah. the Chinese then um, succeeded in winning. Yeah, that was very much my feeling. We'll take a quick break, but uh, when we come back, we'll uh, perhaps uh, make some sort of synergy between those issues of climate change and security and strategic policy. Maria, we've got a question on that, so I'll uh, come back with that in a moment. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Well, welcome back, folks. Um, and so our first question today is from Jonathan Zabriskie, and he basically asks uh, whether or not um, effectively, given in a world where we're dealing with climate-related security challenges more than state-instigated threats, is Australia distracted by this China debate? The main game should be climate change. Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really important question because clearly we do face in climate change a, a challenge which is, amongst other things, a security challenge of enormous dimensions and complexity and and very new. It's a very new kind of security challenge. And uh, and clearly, of course, both nationally and globally, we don't yet have anything, we don't have the ghost of an effective response to it. And it's tempting to think that this is therefore more important and should take priority over other triumphs of security challenges, particularly, so to speak, the old-style security challenges of state-on-state conflict. But I I don't buy the argument that we can only face one problem at a time. Uh, And my 
my point would be that we do face a very significant challenge from climate change, but we also, at the same time, face a very serious challenge from state-on-state strategic rivalry. But that point you made before the break about uh, you know the, the choice that uh, the, the analysis Obama arrived at that yes. needed the cooperation it, of China to move on uh, to get to make any progress on climate change. Yes. Uh, therefore, it sort of affected uh, you know their strategic position, a strategic policy. I mean, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it you, is. You, you, yeah. You're right. You can focus on more than one issue at a time, but these issues actually have an interplay as well. Absolutely. They certainly do. And, you know, there's no way we can make any progress on climate change without very active cooperation between the US and China. And the fact is that the, that the level of strategic rivalry between them, as well as many other problems, including the attitude of the Trump administration, um, makes effective cooperation on climate change today almost impossible. But we also need to bear in mind that whilst we're worrying about the implications of long-term warming of the global climate, there is also a serious risk of a conflict between the United States and China, which could turn easily turn into the largest conflict we've seen since the Second World War and could easily turn into a nuclear exchange. Now, I'm not saying climate change, you don't have to downgrade the significance of climate change to say that the management of US-China relations and the management of the risk of a nuclear conflict between them is a really first-order priority. It's not a distraction. Now, one of the things that's happened in the last few decades is that um, we've become very complacent about nuclear weapons, or at least we've become very complacent about the prospect of nuclear war between major powers. We've focused a lot on Iraq and Iran and North Korea, and we've forgotten that most of the nuclear weapons are still in the hands of the big guys, and that... For decades during the Cold War, we were all very focused on how the quality of their bilateral relations affected the risk of nuclear conflict. We've sort of forgotten about mm. that, but we've we've seen a whole generation now of people grown up without really thinking much about that. And so folks in, in Washington and for that matter in Canberra blithely talk about, yes, let's push back and contain China. China is a nuclear power. The, the, if, if, if you really push the Chinese hard... Don't presume that nuclear weapons don't come into the picture. And it's not that I think the Chinese will fight a nuclear war deliberately in order to confront the United States, but that once a conflict begins, both sides find themselves edging up towards a nuclear threshold and they don't know where that nuclear threshold is. Well, and in, in a world in which uh, a nuclear taboo might not be as strong. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I, I think we've been – I think we're way too optimistic about the nuclear taboo. We, we survived the Cold War – uh, without a nuclear exchange, in part because the threshold, the nuclear threshold was very clear and it was low, frighteningly low, but it was very clear. So so both sides knew how to avoid it. You know, if you drive your tank through Checkpoint Charlie from west to east, you'll be at war and it'll be a nuclear war or, or vice versa. But today, nobody knows where the nuclear threshold is in Asia, but the stakes are very high. And the other difference is that during the, during the Cold War, the, the resolve of both sides was very clear. It was very crystal clear that both the United States and the Soviet Union were willing to fight a nuclear war in order to preserve what they saw as their position. Whereas today between America and China, both sides' perceptions of the other resolve, other's resolve is much more ambiguous. In America, a lot of people think that the Chinese in the end are going to back off. And in China... A lot of people believe that the United States is going to back off. And that underestimating of one another's resolve very readily creates a position where neither, neither side thinks they need to back off in an escalating crisis because they think the other side will. 
And if neither side backs off, then the crisis happens. Yeah, it's a witch's brew of complexity, really, as Tony oh, Abbott might have said. Oh, oh uh, it, no, it, it, it really is. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound too gloomy, but I do think we are at an unusually dangerous moment. Because... We, we are living in an era of greater surprises, right? Like, you know, yeah, yeah. our capacity to predict is has gone down. What's your, what's your just, just... Or, or more gloomily, maybe, it, maybe we can predict. And maybe what we can predict is that we are seeing escalating rivalry between two nuclear armed powers and the chances of conflict between them is really quite high. Do you have a view about what would possibly – Terrifying. What's your assessment of what is the most likely cause of some sort of flashpoint? Is, uh, it, is it Taiwan? Is it, look, look I think it, one, one of the things I've, I've noticed over the years studying this history is that, is that very often the spark is not what you expect. Yeah. Um, the basic circumstances, which project, you know, the underlying causes are, are highly predictable. The spark that turns those underlying causes into an event is unpredictable. But having said that, I, th- I think, for example, Taiwan is it r- remains a very dangerous place. Um, for- and going back to your point about what superpowers do, what great powers do in terms of protecting their and, and asserting their sphere of influence and securing their their perimeters and so forth. I mean, Taiwan is a sort of a direct challenge to yeah. the integrity of the Chinese state. And, it's, a, and, it's a real and, thorn in their side. It's got great support from the West. And conversely, it's also a real test for America's resolve in Asia. It's worth bearing in mind that when great powers go to war, they almost always go to war, not over whatever the specific issue might be. You know, but by a proxy st- issue. St- 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 you know, the status of the Dunzig Corridor in, 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 in Poland in September 1939 or the status of Serbs in the Austro-Hungarian Empire in August 1914, they go to war over who's going to be the primary power in a particular system. And so, uh, in you know, over Taiwan, for example, what's at stake is not so much the political complexion of Taiwan and its connection with the, the CC with China, mainland China. It's the whether China can assert its position as the leading power in Asia that's not going to be pushed around, and when America, whether America can assert its position as the leading power in Asia that, that is not going to abandon a country or an entity to which it believes it has strategic undertakings, and so the stakes for both sides are much higher than than even the significance of Taiwan's own political complexion. The stakes are who is going to be the leading power in the world's most dynamic and strategically significant region. So this is an excellent segue for another question from an audience member from Adam Radmore, and he basically asks, um, is it time for Australia to basically sort of switch to a primarily maritime uh, strategy, or should we be basically pursuing uh, more defence spending to increase our strategic independence? We we face a very big choice as a country about what we do about the possibility that the United States' power in Asia is fading. Today, Australian defence policy continues to be based on the assumption that America will basically solve these problems for us. Now, if we lose confidence in that, and I think we should. Then we have to ask a very big question about whether or not we try and build armed forces to look after ourselves independently. If we choose to do that, my argument is, going to the question Maria raised, is absolutely that we should do it with a focus on maritime capabilities. 
We, we, we are a maritime country. We're not just an island ourselves. All our neighbours are islands. We live in a wider region, which has got a very strong maritime focus. And so I think we should focus absolutely on our capacity to project, prevent other countries projecting power by sea, both either against ourselves or against our neighbours. And this is, at one level, you look at the map and that seems obvious. But when you look at our history, it's much less obvious because what do we do on the 1st of September 1939? We did what we'd done in 1914. We raised a big army and sent it overseas to support our allies. And if there's, no, you know, Australians, when Australians think of, of our military history, when we think of the ADF, we think of the Army. Whereas when we look at the map, we should be thinking about the Navy and the Air Force. So I think we do need to, to the extent that we decide we want to develop a more independent uh, strategic posture at a time when, uh, over the decades, when our allies are less reliable, I think we should focus overwhelmingly on maritime capabilities. And that means we need a very different kind of ADF from the one we're building at the moment. Do you think it, uh, if we did make that change, do we need to also change the way we think about our own landmass? I mean, we're, we're obviously huddled around the sort of southeast perimeter of it mostly, but, uh, you know, our vulnerability in terms of territorial vulnerability is to the north. I'm not suggesting that we should move Sydney to, uh, you know, to, to Port <laughs> Hedland, but um, do we need to, in the long term, be having much greater naval protection and and, and uh, sort of uh, location in that region? Yeah, look, um, up to a point, it depends a lot on what particular kind of operations you're talking about. I do think we need to put a very big focus on the capacity to deny our air and sea approaches to hostile forces. I think that remains the kind of foundation of Australia's um, military security. Um, and for air bases, for example, that means because air aircraft are relatively short range, it mm -hmm. means you've got to have a very comprehensive system of air bases across northern Australia. Actually, we're not too badly placed there because of decisions by successive governments, particularly back in the 80s and 90s, to build that a, a ring of bases there. But I think that will need a lot more work. Um, and of course, not just the bases, but the systems to support and supply them. Uh, on the naval front, though, I, I, I think uh, our naval operations need to be primarily submarine operations. Submarine operations need to operate at long range. So I think it makes perfect sense to keep the base down in, down near Perth um, uh, because you want your base fairly remote yeah. and therefore quite secure. Um, uh, and just recognise that our submarines are going to spend a lot of time at sea travelling backwards and forwards to the key area of operations. That's part of the way submarine operations have got to, got to work. Okay, so I guess, you know, we spent two weeks really in this country sort of talking about the Pacific, the Pacific yes. Island step up, you know, the sort of debacle um, a couple of weeks ago. And this sort of goes to um, the question Dylan Bailey raised, which is about, you know, natural resources and specifically, you know, fresh water playing into Australia's geopolitical situation. I mean, you know, how are these kinds of conflicts over water, over climate change going to intersect with the fact that in our region, these people are much more vulnerable? and China's the big player? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. I think, uh, I don't think, you know, one of the benefits of being an island continent is that we don't face the kind of potential for conflict over water, mm. over freshwater, that, that other parts of the world do. If you look at the Middle East, for example, going back, you know, thousands of years, or Southeast Asia, mainland Southeast Asia, where the future of the river systems there, the, the Mekong and so on, are a, a, a really key key factor. Um, I, I think that is that is already and will increasingly be um, as pressure on freshwater increases uh, a really key factor in the way those regions work. 
On, on the other hand, I'm kind of pessimistic about what that will mean strategically because China is just so much the dominant power on the mainland of, of, of East Asia. I mean, we talk about a strategic contest between the US and China and Asia, but it's not a strategic contest on the continent of East Asia. China is the dominant power there, and I think it's going to be one of the dramas and perhaps one of the tragedies of the next few decades is how China exercises that power over its mainland Southeast Asian neighbours. The question about what happens offshore, the, the, the Southeast Asian archipelago, particularly, of course, Indonesia, the Philippines, Australia, that's a, that has different dimensions because once you leave the continent and start going to sea, the strategic dynamics change very sharply. Can we shift the focus now just briefly before we finish to the decision of Australia to involve itself in this coalition to keep the Strait of Hormuz open? Yeah. What's your assessment of that? Look, there's a couple of angles here. Um, it's worth making the point that Australia has for decades now cultivated its reputation as a good US ally by sending forces to the Middle East. And there's been a reason for that. It's because for a very long time, really since we came back from Vietnam in 1972, Australia has not done much in Asia to support the United States. We have not fired a shot in anger. We have not made an operational deployment in Asia to support the United States since we came home from Vietnam. So if anyone in Washington ever asked the question, what does Australia do for us to, to make it a good ally? The answer is, We've turned up in the Middle East, and in fact, we've been very effective in that. Very small contributions, which at least until Afghanistan didn't cost us very much, have given Australia a very strong, I would say somewhat inflated reputation as one of America's closest allies. And at one level, that's quite good. That's quite good statecraft, well, if you well, know. Part what of I mean. that comes from it being so far away. So well, well exactly. It's, to do it's, it it's is... easy for us. You see, the, the 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 further away it is, the easier it is to do it. We we <laughs> haven't had to make t those tough choices because you know, in the end, we don't really care too much. So, uh, but this has become much more acute in the last few years, because for the first time, really, since Nixon went to China in 1972, China, America, does face a strategic rival in Asia, and guess what? That strategic rival is. Mm. Our biggest trading partner. So Australia has been desperate not to make a choice, has been desperate not to side too overtly with the United States. So, for example, during the Osmin earlier this month, uh, the, the United States very plainly floated the idea of how would you like to host some intermediate range missiles on Australian territory and the Australian government shot that down very sharply. Mm. That, that is Australia making a choice. And, and similarly, we haven't participated in those direct in incursions the free, into the 12-mile limit. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we've actually been saying no to the United States in Asia and the more you say, buying the, and, and buying we're buying with the goodwill yeah. by going to the meat. So, so at one level, this is, this is just Australia reverting to what has been actually for a long time, quite a successful alliance management strategy. So on, in relation to this, this particular operation, it, it does seem to me that um, the, the tensions between Iran and the US at the moment very directly flow from America's withdrawal from the joint cooperative plan of action and the Iran nuclear deal, which I think was a very foolish decision by the United States and one Australia has not supported Officially it. doesn't support, but is not really saying all that much. But about he's it. not saying all that much about it. That's exactly right. And I think the the argument there is an argument that says because this whole problem has flowed from 
a stupid American decision. We shouldn't be doing too much to help America out of it. On the other hand, freedom of navigation through the Straits of Formos is a pretty significant interest for everyone, including for Australia. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can say Australia does not have a, a dog in that fight. And I do notice that the scale of our contribution is extremely modest. So far. Uh, so far, well, yes, but it's, uh, Australia actually has a pretty good record of keeping the knob turned down pretty low. I mean, John Howard back in 2003 with all the fuss about Australia supporting the United States in, um, in the invasion of Iraq. Now, what we did was significant symbolically, but Howard did a very good job of making sure that our contribution was nice and small. And I think, um, uh, I think Scott Morrison is trying to emulate John Howard in that respect, as in many others. I think you're right. I think that is the, the plan. But, uh, you know, because we, we, we always worry about mission creep. The trouble yes. is uh, now we perhaps have mission creep as a president. Yes. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I, I think over the years, I think Australia has been quite good at avoiding being drawn too, mm. too much further in. It, it has happened. It happened in Iraq. It happened in Afghanistan. Um, but I think if we can keep this to one ship and one aircraft. Uh, and 200 people. Yeah. I think it's yeah, that small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty modest. But the, but there is another question, and that's a question that no one has so far asked yet. And that is, what is what the military call a concept of operations here? I mean, are, are our ships actually going to be escorting tankers? Mm. If they are, what are the rules of engagement? What happens if an Iranian ship comes out and tries to stop a tanker? So I, I, I would like to hear a lot more than we've heard so far yeah. about how this operation is actually going to work. People often in this situation focus on the big decision, are we going or aren't we? But I'm always interested in saying, well, what's, what's this, how does this work on the ground? You know, military operation is a bit like engineering. It's a matter of, you know, you want to see how it's actually going to yeah. pan out and how dangerous it is, how significant our risk of being joined into an escalating conflict with Iran depends a lot on the answers to those questions. Yeah, one assumes that uh, the presence of those military assets there is is, is the deterrent and that, um, I mean, because what, what we've one, seen in the case of uh, some of these tankers that have been um, intercepted by Iranian uh, uh, presidential guard or whatever yes. it's called, uh, th this has happened with, you know, small vessels approaching the tanker and boarding and yeah. so forth. And that uh, if they are being accompanied or if there are patrol boats in the area, this is far less likely to happen. Yes, I think that's probably the calculation and it's probably right. But sometimes what you expect to deter ends up provoking. Yeah. And so I think it's always a good idea to have asked the question, what, what happens if deterrence doesn't work? And I'm not sure those questions have yet been answered to my satisfaction. Yes, I think you're right. There are many questions about that. Uh, Hugh White, it's been fantastic having you on here. Before we go, uh, just a couple of uh, um, housekeeping things, I guess. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. You can do that at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever indeed you get your podcasts. And you can also rate Democracy Sausage, uh, you know, write a review or uh, rate it in some yes, way. Yes, leave us a review. Yeah, that would be uh, – we'd be very grateful to get that kind of feedback. So. And we'd like to thank our reviewer givers. Uh, so far we've had RadDog69, Sharpie83, Gafusga. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, but thank you. And uh, Frio Chick, so thank you very much for your reviews and please, please continue to do so. Yes, no, it's really valuable to get that kind of feedback. We look forward to, uh, to, to reading that and we always appreciate the extra questions that we get. So uh, can I thank uh, you, Hugh White, for coming on here today on Great Democracy pleasure. Sausage. Thank and you. Maria, thanks to you and we'll see uh, everyone or talk to everyone again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. 